All right, good morning. My name is Jason Nichols. I'm one of the, the elders here at Believer's Church. And as most of you probably are aware, uh, Dan Bourne, our full-time uh, pastor, is on sabbatical for this month. And he's kind of winding that up for the month of February, and he'll be back with us next Sunday. But I'm really eager to, to preach and to give you God's Word this morning. And I'm so thankful how he's applied this to my heart this week and share with how the Spirit might apply to your heart. So, but we get to talk to the kids first, like usual, and that's always fun. Kids, where are you at? Raise your hand so I can see you. All right. We're just going to jump right into food today. Who likes food? All right. Food's good, isn't it? All right. So I want you to think about, you can go ahead and lower your hands. I want you to think about, but not say anything out loud yet. What is a food that you can think of that you have during a celebration or tradition that you have with your family. But don't say it out loud. Just think about it because we're going to go through some pictures here. Okay? What's a food that you can think of that has to do with a celebration? Let's go ahead and check out our first one. Broccoli. Who likes broccoli? Wow, we have a lot more broccoli likers than I anticipated. So any, any special parties, celebrations connected to broccoli? Anybody have a big broccoli feast once a year? Not so much. Let's try this next one. Bananas? Who likes bananas a little bit better than broccoli? Bananas are a little bit better, right? Okay, still, anybody have any banana feasts? Uh, any family traditions that involve a banana that I'm not aware of? You might have one. You have one? All right. An ice cream banana split maybe, right? Are pretty good. But the next one? All right, what's that? Macaroni and cheese. Who likes, who would choose macaroni and cheese over the broccoli and the banana? There's a lot, I knew there would be a lot of mac and cheese fans. I predicted that one. Okay, that's mac and cheese. Okay, any celebra- any, any uh, mac and cheese lovers, any celebrations you can think of where you, every year or once a month, mac and cheese is always part of the tradition. Solomon? All right, so how about this next one? What is that? Yes, Ailey? It's a a cake. All right, Philip, what kind of cake? Exactly right, Philip, it is a birthday cake. So everybody likes birthday cake, right? Anybody not like a birthday cake? I don't believe it if you raise your hand on that one. Okay, birthday cakes are good. So what are birthday cakes for? Yes, Z. Birthday Birthday cakes are for birthdays, all right? So who has a, who has a, does it happen to be, and this is for the adults too, does it happen to be anybody's birthday today? All right. Does anybody in here have a birthday coming up? That's kind of a trick question, right? I hope everybody has a birthday coming up, right? Even if you had a birthday yesterday, you should have another, Lord willing, another birthday coming up. And so we celebrate birthdays with a birthday cake in our culture. I think a lot of other cultures do it too because we want to celebrate the day that you were born. And so that's a fun time, isn't it? It's a party. It's a celebration. And we do that to remember something very, very special that you were brought into this world and you were born on that day. Okay? And so... 
today we're going to talk a little bit about a tradition or celebration that God instituted, actually Jesus instituted himself, called the Lord's Supper. And that's going to have to do with bread and wine, or we use juice here at BC, but those things actually point to not his birthday, but what do those point to? Uh, Let's see, who's back? Jonathan? I was... Yes, it does. Yes, I was actually expecting, uh, Jonathan said his resurrection, and it does point to his resurrection. What does it also point to, Levi? Yeah, it, it commemorates when he died. So birthdays are celebrating our birth, and we know Christmas celebrates Jesus' birth, but the Lord's Supper actually celebrates a death. And the word celebration and death, that's kind of a, those are kind of odd words to put together, aren't they? But the reason we celebrate his death is because we know he did not stay dead. And he rose again, Jonathan, because he was resurrected, absolutely. And he died in our place. So it is a death worth celebrating. And so, listen kids, we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. But go home and talk to your families about what the, what the bread and juice represents. Um, and what the Lord's Supper uh, means. And and have some conversation about that celebration, okay? Because just like we do birthdays to remember, Jesus is going to tell us soon today in the passage that he wants us to remember his death and his resurrection. All right, so if you were here last week or listened online, you'll remember that uh, Daniel taught on uh, Luke chapter 21. If you're new here today, we're working our way through the book of Luke. We're approaching the end of it. Uh, Most of what Daniel dealt with last week was uh, the end times, and he figured it all out for us so that we know exactly what every passage in that, in chapter 21 means, right? Everybody is an expert on the end times. I don't think that was the, that was the goal. I don't think that happened, but it was really encouraging, and I was really encouraged about what we heard last week. Uh, Just a real quick review. We talked about when Jesus comes back, we will know. Uh, We won't be scratching our heads thinking, Is this really Jesus coming back? We are going to know. It's going to be very, very obvious. Uh, And then chapter 21 concluded last week with Jesus telling his disciples for us to watch ourselves, be ready, be alert, and pray, which was really kind of Daniel's uh, conclusion. And then after Jesus' words ended, chapter 21 ends with verse 37 and 38 with Luke telling us that in every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So this brings us to our uh, text for today. It's going to be Luke chapter 22, 1 through 34. So let's go ahead and read that together. Luke 22, 1 through 34. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, 
Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of whom who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise a lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greatest, one who reclines at the table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So before we go through, um, just to kind of set the stage for the text today, uh, we have the first verse. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. We really need to have a, a handle on what that meant and what that was because we're going to see that come up over and over again in the passage. Um, I'm going to reference a few things in Exodus 11 and 12 if you want to flip back to Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible in the Old Testament, the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, right after Genesis, you can do that. Otherwise, uh, you can just listen because I don't have slides uh, for this part. But the feast was an annual celebration for the Jews that goes all the way back to Exodus when God's people were held in slavery to the Egyptians. God brought many plagues, as you might remember, upon Egypt and on Pharaoh, who was the leader of the Egyptians, in order to let the people go. But the scriptures show us the steps God and, and the scriptures show us the steps God took. Uh, to, to do that. And after many plagues being sovereignly unsuccessful, uh, we have the tenth plague that is threatened in verse 1, which brings about this feast or celebration. The Lord says, uh, said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So God knew what it would take all along for Pharaoh to relent. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him the Lord's going to kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And he was clear that the firstborn did not only include animals, but it included human beings as well. 
Then shortly after this threat of this, of this tenth plague, the Lord decreed on the tenth day of the first month of the Jewish calendar that his people should kill a lamb without blemish and then take that blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintels of their house. I actually finally looked up the word lintel. I don't use that word too often. I don't know if you do, but the lintel is just the horizontal part of the door. You guys probably all knew that. I didn't, but if, if you didn't, you're, now we know what a, a lintel is. Um, so after that, after they do that with the blood, they're to eat the lamb, meat itself prepared exactly like God commanded. It is in Exodus twelve eleven that says this is the Lord's Passover. Since God was going to pass through the land, killing all the firstborn in Egypt, but pass over every house where the blood of the lamb had been placed. And verse 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And then God instructed from the 14th to the 21st day of that same month, so a week long, that his people should observe the feast of unleavened bread. So that's what we see, see here uh, in the passage in Luke today. So Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place, no leavened bread shall be eaten. So originally the Passover was a one-day feast that started the Feast of Unleavened Bread that lasted another seven days. So just understanding this celebration that God instituted is really important. In verse 2, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Uh, The religious leaders, people who were committed to following the Old Testament law, knew that this big gathering of the Passover was coming. And Luke says they were actively seeking a way to put Jesus to death. Notice not whether to put him to death. That had already been decided. This is how they were going to put him to death. They were discussing the method of execution, the method of apprehension. This means they've already determined that he needed to die. And before, part of their motivation for the timing of things was because they also feared the people, the text tells us. This was referring to the large number of people that looked positively on Jesus' life uh, in his miracles. doesn't mean that they were committed followers of his necessarily, but they liked what they saw and they liked what they heard. And the, and the religious leaders were upset because, hey, this, this large number of positive people, there could be, a, there could be a, a, a riot. And Mark's account of this same story mentions the religious leaders saying, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Luke tells us then in verses 3 through 6, <clears throat> Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So this tells us a few important things about the betrayal of Judas. First, first thing is that although Satan or devil has been mentioned in Luke chapter 8, 10, 11, and 13, he's been pretty inactive or at least he's been on the defensive or under attack since he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. In Luke 4.13, way back when that occurred, after being tempted for that 40 days, Luke tells us there, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That opportune time, I think, is very fitting to believe that this is it. So... um, Satan's hour had come to begin his full offensive attack on Jesus through one of his twelve, Judas Iscariot. 
And Iscariot simply refers to the location of Judea where he is from. He was the only non-Galilean of the group of disciples. Uh, so Judas, under the influence of the devil, goes to the chief priests who were simply those in like, the hierarchy of the temple. And he goes to the officer guards who were most likely the temple police. So it makes it clear it's a combination of human evil and the supreme evil one, Satan himself, that is conspiring against the Son of God. And, and here's their reaction, and it says they were glad when they decided with Judas how Jesus would be betrayed. People that have devoted their lives to studying the Old Testament, which was always meant to point forward to Messiah, are glad. And another translation says they were delighted. And the reason they were glad or delighted or and delighted is because many people, again, were responding positively to Jesus, as we already mentioned. Uh, it says... Uh, it said in verse 2, they feared the people. So when I've thought about Judas's role in the past, I'm not sure about you, but I've just often concluded that Judas was just mainly greedy. And I, sure, I struggled in other areas, but greed really got him in that moment. And that money was his main motivation. But the text doesn't really make that clear. Luke's account and Mark's account both seem to indicate Judas's decision to betray Jesus actually came before he was given the money. But even though it appears that money wasn't the driving motivation, Luke takes, he still wants to take time here to, to mention the money because of other things that he said already uh, with, uh, with its destructive power that Jesus has already spoken about several other times. So we'll say more about Judas as we go through the text later as he will come back into the picture, but we'll stop there for now. Verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare a Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room and where I, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished, prepare it there. And they, found, and they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So, I've always assumed this was really similar to Jesus' triumphal entry that he was preparing that Dan preached about uh, back in January where he was told to go and find the donkey that had never been ridden and it was tied and, and uh, he'll get that and ride on and it was God knowing all things, his omnipresence, his sovereignty. Just put those things in place and all that is true. But studying this text this week, this seems to be more of an example of how of, uh, of actually this being prearranged by Jesus himself. Much like we might make, reach out to people and make contacts if we were going to secure a facility or, or get ready for a celebra celebration or a party. Um, so here, here are a few reasons. It would have been very uncommon and really strange for a man to carry a jar of water in first century culture. That was a task just for women. And a man would never be seen doing that. A uh, second reason is when Jesus says the teacher ask, that, that would have been sufficient since the owner would have known of the prearrangement. Third, the owner had uh, furnished the room with cushions and other furniture needed for eating the Passover. And four, while the locations and furnishings were provided, Jesus instructed Peter and John to go do the rest of the preparations that had to do with sacrificing the lamb and, and getting, getting those things ready. So you might ask, what's the, you know, what's the significance uh, whether it's prearranged and coordinated or whether God's, God's sovereignty just made it happen and either way it accomplished the same purpose, right? And that's, I think the answer to that is true. 
But I think it's a good example of Jesus and his humanity looking ahead, planning, getting things ready in a way of serving others. Uh, And for this occasion, something very, very important. Jesus' entire life embodied what it meant to serve. And this is another example where Jesus served others, and in this case, specifically his disciples. And, And he did this. He coordinated this, knowing that his execution was just days away. He was living his life and honoring the Father by the obedience of celebrating the Passover, and he wanted things prepared the right way according to the law. So he had it ready, and he had it done. Verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I love it when Scripture says the hour, when it could say that the time has come. I just love the language of the hour because... um, the power and impact of the word hour brings about an exactness that the word time just doesn't. Under God's decree, he is sovereign over all that he purposes. Jesus reclined per the Passover mandate. Like that was part of it. You had to recline. Um, and this is the hour he would bring about the completion of his mission. Not, of course, that the Passover wasn't in and of itself, but it was the beginning to look forward to what he was getting ready to, to go through to become that very Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There would be no more lambs needed to foreshadow a coming Savior who would bleed and die. He was hours away from becoming that Lamb. So so Jesus took the initiative to recline at the table, and the apostles were with him. Each person would be expected to prop themselves up on the side with some kind of cushion underneath, and they would eat the meal on a table that was probably about half the height of most of our coffee tables that we have in our houses. Uh, The popular... And famous uh, Leonardo da Vinci portrait in which Jesus and his disciples are portrayed at the table, uh, sitting at a nice banquet feast. I think that's a beautiful portrait. I think some of the expressions on the faces, if you've ever seen that, are, are, are uh, potentially realistic. But the, the, we, we know the painting isn't accurate because they wouldn't, have been, they wouldn't have been seated. Not a hugely significant point, but just something to note there. Hope that, disappoint, hope that doesn't disappoint you if you're a Da Vinci fan. So they're all reclining, and Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. Earnestly can also be, uh, be translated as deep desire or eagerness. We often think of, at least I do, I think of Old Testament rituals and traditions as very dutiesome kind of routine, but Jesus is always earnest, and he's always intentional. Yes, it may have had something to do with the fact that he knew this was his last Passover, but we know Jesus walked with the Father with full, wholehearted worship and obedience every step of his life, that he never obeyed the Old Testament laws out of duty or cold apathy. To him, traditions and celebrations were always a full act of worship and love for his Father. And and so Jesus wants to spend time with his disciples before his death. He is earnest not only to partake of this meal, but he's deeply eager to, for community as some of his toughest painful days await him. In his humanity, he was under stress, a stress that most of us don't know. I would say all of us don't know, but he didn't isolate and turn away from people in that distress. Jesus did seek out solitude much and often to be with his Father, but that's different than isolation. Isolation gives the enemy a foothold, and isolation takes us away from community. Here, at a very stressful, distressing time in his life, he's going to keep the Passover with his disciples. 
That's, that's uh, my tendency, though, is isolation. I don't know about you guys. I, when I'm feeling just, sometimes I don't run to community like I need to. I would rather just kind of hunker down, analyze, play different scenarios in my head, and just kind of figure it out. But thankfully, Jesus is not like that. There's sometimes um, uh, when missional community comes around during the week. Sorry if you're in my missional community. I think I've, I've, I've shared this with you guys as well, but sometimes I don't feel like going. Sometimes the day's been hard. Um, lots mounted up at work that week. I know what I have to do when I get done, and I just don't feel like going. But those are the days I need community even more than taking a break to be with myself. Um, and so again, I'm not saying there aren't times for solitude because they absolutely are, and those are just as crucial. But we need, we need people, and we see Jesus who even the Son of God himself sought out community. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying he knew his impending death in just a few days was going to keep him from ever sharing the Passover again with his disciples. The kingdom of God is simply referring to the, the big or the messianic banquet at the end of history when the kingdom or God's rule and reign is going to come to complete fruition. Jesus is referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, which I believe should be on a slide behind me. So John says of his vision in Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of a lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the kingdom of God in its fulfillment that Jesus is referring to. He is making all things new, and he says he won't eat the Passover again until that ultimate marriage supper happens. And he took a cup, it says in verse 17, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus again says two verses later that he will not partake of the Passover until the kingdom comes in its fullness. There will be a day when all of God's enemies are in subjection to him in full measure and there will be no more sin, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. That is the day he's referring to. All will be made right once again. Do you yearn for that day? Do you yearn for that day? That's why observing the Lord's Supper is, is as much as looking forward to Jesus' return as it is looking back at his death. And, as, and now as we go to the part where Jesus is asking us to look back at what he did, of course for his disciples it was to remember to look back what was going to happen in just a few days, something they really didn't get yet. Jesus had already, which is kind of an interesting thought, the first time, the first time the Lord's Supper happened, they didn't really get it Still. But nevertheless, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus had already resolved to yield his, his spotless life and be bruised by his Father in order to redeem his people. That decision had been made. The horrible agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, though, that was still to come, well, uh, where he was going to ask God if there was another will or plan to keep him from suffering, that was going to happen, but he knew already that God's 
good decree was going to happen. And so in verse 19, and he took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus knew he was going to give up his body, he was going to shed his blood, he was going to be poured out at the ultimate passing over of the sins of his people. This would be a much grander show of love than even the deliverance of God's people in Exodus. In fact, this is when the Passover and Exodus, this is, this is what the Passover and Exodus was meant to look forward to the whole time. Uh, clearly, Jesus is the bread, or, or saying that the bread and the cup are elements to be merely symbols of Jesus' body and his blood shed. None of the disciples would have thought um, that somehow Jesus' body or, or the bread and the, the wine was actually going to become the real, literal body and blood of Jesus. And that is a teaching, of course, that, that um, many, many people believe. And I think it's um, important that there's just to, just to be clear, because we, use, we believe in God's word as the final authority, that there's no actually textual support for this claim. The bread represents the word who became flesh in John 1.14. Not the flesh alone, but the very person who dwelled in the flesh. And another reason is the fact that drinking blood was forbidden by law makes it a big stretch to think the disciples would thought that they were actually drinking uh, Jesus' blood. So I don't want to share this as a, really as a tangent. And, I, and I'm not saying lead with this subject and your friends who might hold that view. Uh, you need to love them as made in God's image and you need to love and share the gospel with them like you would anyone. But it is an important distinction about what we believe the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper. Uh, Notice that Jesus uh, says his body is given for you and his blood was shed for you. I was looking through that this week and those two words, for you, jumped out at me in a way they have not before. So let's not skip over those words, for you, too quickly. Uh, Mark's account uses the phrase for many, but Luke says for you. I think that makes it even more explicit for those who believe and put their trust in him, and it makes it even more personal. His motivation for enduring the cross was, was for his Father's glory and because he loved you. Period. He really loves you. He really, really, really loves you. That must settle in to my heart and must settle into our hearts and never become a cold, distant, over-familiar statement. When was the last time you simply meditated on the fact that Jesus loves you and you pleaded to God to help your unbelief? When I think about uh, my struggle with whether it be fear of man or pride or selfishness, I know the root is truly because I don't often believe the depth of of God's love for me. Oh, I say that he does. And I know a lot of scripture that would affirm that. But peeling back the layers of my heart and looking at my, my actions at times, I have so far to go in basking in the depth of God's love for me. When I'm too inflated with praise or I'm too deflated with criticism, it's because I'm looking for something else to satisfy or to think that will make me feel loved when I'm, I have the, all the love that I need right there in Christ. And finally, when Jesus says the new covenant in my blood, 
He's expressing his love by saying that his sacrificial blood seals a new covenant promise for all time. He's saying he has accomplished a new exodus, not just liberation from slavery, but slavery to sin. So it's a new kind of freedom. He's removed sin's power and its penalty once and for all. In verse 21, Jesus makes a sudden shift to address his betrayal in front of all his disciples. He says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So, so we know, looking back at verse 3, which I spoke about briefly, Satan has already entered into Judas, right? And at this point, and, and the betrayal has already begun. Verse 21 simply says, the hand of him who betrays me. So the hand, of course, is just a reference to Judas's whole person. We don't sin with an extremity or a body part, but we sin from our heart. And the, and the word betrays me is saying that Judas is in the process of betraying him. This is where we, I want to take a quick look back to verse 3, though, and, and, and look uh, a little bit deeper into that. Let's not think of verse 3 as Satan entering Judas as some kind of sudden event. I'm going to find it, sorry. As, as some kind of sudden event, as if there were no choices about Judas that contributed such an event. It was, it was not just a sudden possession of evil. Judas had made many choices throughout his life that led to this point. His thoughts at some point began to probably be fueled with bitterness, anger, maybe towards other disciples, a jealousy, unforgiveness. He didn't confess those thoughts, likely, and repent, but let them grow and grow and gradually, over time, gave more and more ground to Satan. Uh, if you're a believer here this morning, you shouldn't fear something like this happening to you, but at the same time, we should guard our hearts from arrogantly thinking we could ever become an imposter, an imposter or pretender like Judas. Uh, we know Judas was present for some of the miracles. We know he was present for much of Jesus' teaching, just like the other disciples. Judas knew a lot about Jesus. He spent three years of his life with him. How could you not? He just didn't listen to him on Sunday morning once a, once a week. I mean, he lived with, lived with the Son of God. We know that he talked the part and walked the part because it says in verse 23, they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. The disciples didn't even know at this point. Can you imagine that? You're with somebody for three years and you don't even have really a suspicion of who it might be. They don't know. Judas was not the elephant in the room that everyone was just waiting for Jesus to point out. He blended in so well, even after three years, the closest people who associated with him couldn't tell who the traitor was. There's a quote by Alistair Begg, uh, a pastor and author that I really enjoy. Uh, it's on a slide. We should have that as well. It says, he says, the story of Judas is a permanent, powerful, chilling reminder to every member of the visible church that exists, the dreadful possibility of those among us. Among us who apparently are living in close connection to Jesus, there may be those who are inwardly false and who are busily engaged in betraying him. Do not let appearances deceive us.
We need to move on to verse 22. And I'm not going to skip that. It may seem like I was, but I'm not going to. Uh, of course, I'm going to give it, I'm not going to also be able to give it justice uh, amidst the entirety of the passage today, but I'll mostly let the, teach speak, let the text speak for itself, but I will share a couple of thoughts. It says, For the Son of Man goes, it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. This is a classic example of God's sovereignty and human responsibility hand in, in the presence of one passage side by side. Uh, two of the more well-known texts that share God's sovereignty and human responsibility just like this happen to be in Peter's sermon at, uh, of all people, Peter's sermon at Pentecost in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, which is, uh, should be on the slide behind me as well. So he says, men of Israel, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So it was God's plan to deliver up his son, and we know no one can thwart God's purposes, but at the same time, human beings that crucified Jesus were fully responsible for their actions. Or in Acts, uh, later on in that same sermon, Peter says in Acts 2.39, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So here Peter's talking about the promise of forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit because Pentecost had come and he's saying it's for everyone, young and old, anybody separated from God. But ultimately, he says it's only for those who the Lord our God calls or chooses to reveal himself to. So in these texts in verse 22 about Judas, we, we, we might ask how can these go together? How can God decree that Judas will betray Jesus, yet Judas is not just 50, 60, or 70% responsible, but 100% responsible. And we don't have time to drill much deeper into that subject, but we can rest in knowing that God's word is true, and it is the infinite wisdom of God. And that word infinite says a lot. Just because of our finite minds have trouble reconciling things that might have a, an appearance of contradiction, doesn't mean it should make us doubt. It should make us respond in worship. Is it wrong to study and read about theology and differing views of God's sovereignty, human responsibility? Absolutely not. But we need to take care to not make it our aim to explain and understand, understand things fully in our pride, thinking that we can give the perfect explanation. We need to recognize both are all over Scripture. And things like this and many other, there are other things that we can't explain. We shall learn in humility to say with Paul as he closes in his letter to the church at Rome, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That's a way to respond in worship for God's infinite wisdom. So quickly back to verse 23. Jesus is telling us they, they began talking and asking questions to one another since they didn't know who the betrayer was. We, of course, know who the betrayer is because Luke told us in verse 3, and we're reading back on the story. Immediately after this conversation, we're, we're told in verse 24 that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was, regarded, was to be regarded as the greatest. And the songs we sang today in the, in the liturgy of which uh, I had no um, hand in at all were so applicable as I sang and read those today to, to this section of our text. Uh, this should startle us. Even after Jesus put a question in their minds about who was going to betray them, the disciples jump to which of them was going to be the greatest. 
The last three years, Jesus had demonstrated over and over again that the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He taught it with words, and his life backed up his words. He served by healing people and performing miracles. He served by forgiving sins. He served by rebuking people and already has at other times in Scripture rebuked them for talking about who was going to be the greatest. He's already dealt with them about this self-serving type of, type of attitude. He served people by delivering them from demons and satanic oppression. He served by washing his disciples' feet and the list could go on and on and on. And now in Luke 22, Jesus has just served them by getting the Passover ready, spending time with them, and has just clearly told them what the, the bread and the wine represent in his ultimate act of serving them would involve dying for them. He was just as clear as he could have been not in parable form like he had spoken before, but he was clear. And the disciples are still so self-absorbed that they're having a conversation about who is the greatest. Uh, and even though my heart wants to, to judge them when I read that, if I, really, if I really look at my heart rightly, I know I do the same thing. I find encouragement because I find myself doing the exact same thing in Jesus suffered with them long. Uh, I, followed quite, I, I followed Christ now for about 25 years, came to know Christ in college, and God continues to show me by His grace in new ways how I struggle with pursuing self and my own kingdom on a daily basis. Outside of the gospel and Jesus making me new, I can easily compare myself to others and think of ways to get ahead of them. I naturally want to be made much of. I want to be complimented. I want to be praised. Like I said, the liturgy today was, was spot on. I'm competitive and I want to win at life, whatever that means. You know, I often mean that in a selfish sense, not believing in those moments that Jesus has won at life for me. He paid for my victory. It's already decided. He just says, trust me and believe me. And I'm not saying that anyone should feel guilty for trying their best or, or guilty if you get a raise or a better paying job or a promotion or you're doing the best you can, you can do. In fact, you're, you're expensive. God wants you to do that. But what's your heart's motivation in such achievements? Is it to look better than your peers? Is it to get more stuff? Is it to attain status to feel good about yourself? Or is it to love God and serve others in that new position or task or role or responsibility? That's the question. Here's Jesus' response in verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? So at this point, after three years, I think a predicted response for most of us, certainly me, might be, these guys just don't get it. I'm getting ready to die in just a few hours. Let's just, let's just call the Passover done. Let's end the Lord's Supper. Let's just be done. It's, we, I've tried. It's useless. And we know that God does not respond that way, thankfully, even though we are prone to do that. Uh, he's probably been tempted to respond this way many times, bearing with the disciples. Remember, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. He was tempted to get frustrated and cut people off and and. He, was, he felt that temptation, but he never gave into it. He never wrote them off. He never said in frustration, I'm done. 
He persevered with them. He teaches them again by saying two statements and asking two questions. First, Jesus tells them how their, how their culture defines leadership and greatness by saying the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship. Jesus is basically saying, you're acting the same way as your culture. Uh, Jesus is not saying that this, con- that this concept is bad and when they pervert it or get it wrong, he is saying the whole notion of their contemporary leadership culture is wrong. And I think he's saying it's wrong for us too. Uh, benefactors were simply those who were wealthy and of high status and didn't have to pay taxes. So really to provide leadership in this culture required wealth. Sounds a lot like ours. The human heart then and the human heart now says the same thing. Get ahead, make money, have status, have honor, be in charge of others, have authority over others so they can serve you, and then you'll be great. And Jesus flips that completely upside down. He defines greatest as being humble about serving. He says true leadership is marked by by serving others. And then asks two questions that go back to what they just did celebrating the Lord's Supper. He asks, for who is greater, the one who serves or one who reclines? And all the disciples were likely still in the reclining position at this point. Then Jesus basically answers his own question with another question. Is it it not the one who reclines, but I am among you as the one who serves? Or am I the one who is among you as, or or you might say, I'm the one among you as the waiter. Essentially, he says, look at me, but in a way that only Jesus can do without an ounce of pride or arrogance. And then after Jesus rebuked them for their selfishness, he affirms them. So he's, he's, a, he's dealing with their, their arrogance for multiple times. It's the Passover. He knows this is the last time. And then he goes right into verse 28 with an affirmation. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus says, you've been with me through all of Satan's attempts to undermine my mission. Jesus is affirming them even in their struggle with being self-absorbed. And Jesus is referring to a kingdom to come of which they are going to be a part in the same way he said in verse 16 and 18 about not eating with the disciples again until the marriage supper of the Lamb, until, until God's kingdom is fulfilled. Remember, there is now a new covenant kingdom coming, Jesus is saying. What it means exactly to sit on the 12 tribes of, or sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel is, is debated. But I think it's, uh, in general, it's a reference to the promise of all believers benefiting from Jesus' reign. In one sense, Jesus is already reigning over sin, death, and Satan, but ultimately, the fulfillment of the kingdom and the full consummation has not come yet, but will when Jesus returns. And so, uh, lastly, we need to, for the sake of time, we need to get to, to Peter at least initially, and then we'll see more about him in the messages to come. Lastly, Jesus addressed Peter specifically in front of the others. I've always been told that's usually kind of a bad practice, right? If you want to talk to somebody about something kind of personal or confront them, maybe take them, take them aside, maybe make it a little more private. Um, it might go better that way. But Jesus had a purpose in wanting the others to hear his conversation with Peter in this context. Jesus didn't use... He never used bad judgment. He never chose the wrong setting. His counsel is always perfect, unlike the many ways we get it wrong. One of the obvious reasons Jesus probably included the others is because we know that all of the disciples would eventually falter in their faith, right? The scriptures are clear. They would falter, not just Peter. And So Jesus says, 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Most uh, scholars believe that Jesus called Peter his pre-Christian name. Remember, it used to be Simon, that he did that on purpose here. Kind of bringing to light that he was in a state of his heart that was going to lead him to make some choices that was really kind of based upon who he was in his, in his uh, reverting back to his former way of life uh, before becoming a Christian. And sifting his wheat is simply a metaphor describing the time of testing that is to come for all of the disciples. So let's think as just uh, as sifting as testing. Knowing this is coming, Jesus tells Peter, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So just a, a few thoughts on Peter and then uh, we'll close soon. I have, uh, Jesus is specifically saying he has prayed for Peter that his faith wouldn't fail. And notice that he doesn't say if he turns again, but he says when he turns again, Jesus tells him to strengthen his brothers. Jesus knows Peter is going to fail, but Je- Jesus equally knows Peter is going to repent and grow in a way through his failures where he will be able to minister and provide strength to his brothers. And I'm thankful that that word turn actually means repent. To turn is a great definition for repent, and I was thankful to find that turn doesn't mean something else. It means repent. Peter's usefulness isn't measured by his sinlessness, but by his repentance. Just like your usefulness and my usefulness is not measured by your sinlessness, but by your repentance. Just because this context is towards Peter specifically and individually, the other disciples or us shouldn't think his promise to pray for us doesn't apply. Jesus records Jesus' prayer for all believers, for us in his gospel. If you want to read it later on, it's in uh, uh, John chapter uh, 17. We have a recorded prayer that Jesus prayed for us. Or 1 John 2 verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus continues to intercede for you and I today if we're trusting him. In a very tangible way, just like he prayed for Peter. And we know Peter is ready with a response, right? Think Peter's going to just let this one sink in and ponder? Not Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Verse 33 and then 34. Jesus said, I tell you that Peter, the rooster, will not crow this day and you, until you deny three times that you know me. And I sense Jesus saying that with a sad but assured voice of certainty. Peter's statement sounds full of resolve and determination. And I'm quick to think, come on, Peter, not again. You've, you've already stuck your foot in your mouth so many other times. But only because of the Spirit's work in me, I know I am just as quick and flippant to make resolutions that I don't keep. So I'm gonna, here are a few examples from me. Maybe the Spirit will put uh, within you a few, I, a few things of how you're like Peter. But here, here are a few of mine. After spending time in the Word... I resolve to apologize to someone that I should apologize to. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's somebody at work, somebody at church, but by the time I get around to it, I delay just long enough to come up with justification or reasons that, you know what, maybe I don't need to apologize. Maybe I was right. And so I delay my apology, which really just extends the strife that, that much longer. But yet, I resolved so quickly to do that. 
Or, here's another one, I spend time praying, I would be more gentle, kind, and tender-hearted. And then not even 10 minutes later, before I, I go to work, or after I've been home, I use a harsh word to my wife or my children. Or sitting where you are on a Sunday morning today, I, I resolve to love Jesus and others so much more deeply this week. And then grumble or get angry at, at, at a driver driving too slow on the way home. Like Peter, I'm quick to talk, but slow to follow through. I'm often just as fickle as him. So Peter encourages me greatly the more I see my own heart. But when I don't see my own heart, I judge him. Because God gives so much more grace to those who know their need. And his grace abounds towards you in the same way as you confess your sin and repent. Remember, God came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a gift from him. Be honest, be real. God sees it all anyway, and he says, I died for that. I'm hopeful the Spirit, has, a, has a, as we close, has applied some things to your heart through the text today. And I don't have a list to do today. Uh, but I do have one thing. If I could leave you with one thing for this week, it would be to meditate intentionally on the deep, deep love of Jesus for you. Do that this week. Do that every day this week. Ask that he would reveal his love for you in ways you have been resisting and not seeing. Maybe it's one passage that you read every day and you just sit in silence and say, Lord, show me your love for me. Remind me how much you have forgiven me. Ask him to help your unbelief when you don't feel anything changing. Or he never pushes the way, away the humble. He does, he does oppose the proud, but never stiff arms those who come to him. Run to him. Run to him this week. So uh, as we transition to the Lord's Supper on the, the day of the passage of the Lord's Supper, I won't say too much more about that other than uh, we are joining millions of other Christians who are doing what we read about today, where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So if you are a believer here this morning, you don't have to be a member of Believer's Church, but you, we ask that you have trusted in Christ to forgive you for your sins, and that you're trusting in the love of Christ, not that you don't falter, that you don't mess up, and that you are not fickle, because we are all in our own way, but that we Trust that Christ is the only one who is our solid rock, who never changes. That is the hope that we have. So if that's you, um, you should have a, a cup of, um, with the, the bread and juice in it from the table out there. If you didn't, feel free to get up and get that now. And um, I'm going to pray. And I think we'll have some people play music behind me, and then you guys can take the elements at your own seat. So let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word this morning. Pray that you and your spirit would apply what is helpful and what is accurate and you would help us to forget and not take to heart anything that was not helpful or beneficial according to your word. Father, thank you that you tell, that you give us something as simple as bread and juice and say, do this in remembrance of me. We need to know your deep, deep love for us. So would you drive it deeper in our hearts and help us to love you more, which we know will translate in obedience out of love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.